This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, listen, you know what's a real problem? Chest hair. You know what's an even bigger problem? Showing too much chest hair. This is where my friends from Johnny O come in. They have devised and patented the Johnny O tweener button. The Johnny O tweener button is absolute genius. In fact, they're on their verge to saving all of mankind with it. Johnny O invented and patented the tweener button. What this is is a hidden button between the second and third button, and it's featured on all Johnny O shirts. The tweener button is the first patented button to make sure that you're not too buttoned up or too unbuttoned. The hidden button solves the age-old second button dilemma. Should you button one or should you button two? And you can use the promo code ROAM and get 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com at checkout now through May 30th. That's 20% off the regular price button-ups, which come in a range of fabrics, patterns, and styles. Plus, shipping is free for orders over $85. That's johnny-o.com, promo code ROAM, and get 20% off your first order and free shipping on orders over $85. And check out the entire selection of shirts and other products ranging from polos to shorts, pants, swim, and more, johnny-o.com. That's when the hard treatments came. That's when they had to start sticking needles in that joint to break up the calcification with um, lidocaine. Uh, But it's a horrible injury to have. Trent, I feel like I need lidocaine just hearing that story. Yeah, imagine having your junk taped up on your belly and two 12-inch needles going into each groin. It's not really enjoyable. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast. This is Ep 77, and my guest is former NFL quarterback and Super Bowl champ Trent Dilfer. With the NFL draft coming up next week, who better to have on the pod than the number six pick from the 94 draft? And with Kyler Murray in the mix to be number one overall, who better to catch up with than the guy who coached him at the Elite 11 camp? We haven't caught up in a minute or two, but I have known Trent for a long time. He's an amazing guy with an amazing story to tell. So, Hot up. We're talking a little life and a little football with Trent Dilfer. Let's do this. Trent, it's been a minute or two, but it's so good to have you on the podcast. Let me start right here, Trent. I mean, you could be doing virtually anything at all in this sport, yet your journey has taken you to Lipscomb Academy as head football coach. How did this come to be, and what's it been like so far? Well, I mean, uh, I didn't expect it for one. It was not something I was looking to do. I had, um, it's widely known. I had turned down tons of NFL and college football offers to coach. I had three daughters. I didn't think it was the right season of life to do that with daughters. Um, I had retired to be honest with you. I kind of just, I was doing some TV stuff and dipping my toe in a lot of business ventures and was pretty much retired. And, I kind of hit this place of life where I felt like I wasn't fulfilling my purpose. Um, I wasn't having the impact I wanted to have in uh, young people's lives. Uh, and I felt like, frankly, I had a lot of information that I'd learned through life, a lot through failure. 
um, that I want to be able to get back. And, and through a weird, weird series of events that I don't want to heat up the podcast on, um, this opportunity popped up at Lipscomb. And I said no to it for a week. Never, never really um, thought it was where I should be, but it's just made very clear uh, that this is where I, I needed to be. And my family really pushed me to do it. Um, and I couldn't be happier. I've never felt more alive. I've never been more challenged. I will say this. I, I've never been more challenged. I've never felt more alive. And, and I feel like it's something I've been called to do and that it's fulfilling kind of the, the greater purpose for my life. You know, Trent, given your life, that's a really powerful statement. What is it about this opportunity that makes you feel so alive? And why is this the greatest challenge? I'll say this. I, and I, I've, I've preached this message through the Elite 11 the last nine years as I've run that and when I do corporate speaking events around the country or talk to young people that, you know, no great things happen without hard things. And uh, the edge of uncomfortable is where you kind of find your greatness. And I've been, I can say that with a lot of authority because I've done that early in my life. But to be honest, I hadn't really done that in nine years. I'd had as bad a comfortable as a life as you could have. Um, I kind of had the American, every man's American dream and, and uh, gotten soft, for lack of a better term. And, and to jump back into the fire and to feel like every day is life or death to a certain degree and be challenged intellectually, emotionally, in areas I hadn't been challenged in a long time uh, has brought out the best of me. Uh, why it's so hard? Because you're dealing with young people, and young people are equally hard and awesome at the same time. Um, they have a lot of distractions in life. Our world has become very busy and very uh, confusing, uh, and they're confused. So every single day, I got 85 young men that are kind of walking a very confusing journey, and and it's fr- it's very difficult times. Now, there's I can't think of anything outside of raising my kids that's been more rewarding uh, in a short amount of time. But it, it is definitely a challenge, and it, it keeps me on edge, and it forces me to again be uncomfortable which is bringing out the best of me, and then surround myself with really great people. And, and the staff I've been able, to ha- been able to hire, the people I've been able to surround myself with, the existing community here in Nashville uh, has, has been an amazing group of people. And, and uh, we're, you know, we're winning each day, one day at a time. Good for you. That's great. That really is great. Now, speaking, Trent, of Elite 11, you've worked pretty extensively with the next couple of crops, the quarterbacks entering the NFL. So let's take a few moments to talk about a few of these guys, starting with Dwayne Haskins. Some really seem to like him. Others have his stock falling. You said recently, quote, I don't want to compare anyone to Brady, but he's Tom Brady-ish, end quote. Look, I know you're not going to throw around that kind of praise. What makes you think of Brady when you look at Haskins? Uh, Precise, exact academic, fiercely competitive, chip on his shoulder, command, presence. Those would be terms I throw on Brady. And at 16 years old, you could see those traits with Dwayne as an Elite 11 quarterback. And he's only grown into more of those. Um, he just – now, again, I see why he's dropping the board, dropping on the board on some teams because some teams are moving more towards the twitch, dynamic – powerful type kid. Um, Dwayne is more smooth than he is dynamic. He's more exact than he is twitchy. Um, he, he just kind of has that nothing rattles him. Nothing's going to keep him off schedule. He's going to beat you before the ball is snapped. 
uh, and then he's going to finish the play with precision type DNA in his quarterback blood. Uh, he loves to learn. Uh, he surrounds himself with people to get him better. I mean, he trains with Deshaun Watson, another you know high level college and pro quarterbacks down in Atlanta. Um, he surrounds himself with people that are sophisticated in life because he wants to be sophisticated in life. Um, he, he's just a guy that kind of sees his future um, before it happens. And, I mean, I, I know a lot was made out of it when he was a little kid, and he said, hey, I want to go to Ohio State one day. But that's how he lives his life. I bet you right now he's also envisioning holding the Lombardi Trophy um, because that's the kind of thinker he is. And, and I just think that put in the right system, he can't play in every system, he doesn't have the athleticism to play in every system. But he play, if he plays in a ball out system where the ball out is out, where the ball's out quick, where, where he's well protected, where it's a, a coordinator that understands how to run that type of ball control passing game, I think this guy's the limit for him. Trent, so what about Kyler Murray? Now he's got that amazing athleticism. He's kind of a tough kid to read. Like he really won't let you in. So I don't really know what he's thinking. I can only see from the outside how he looks. What kind of marks do you give him? And when you look at Kyler Murray, what do you see? Well, again, we loved him as a lead eleven player. I mean, here's a kid that went, I think, forty four and zero in high school in Texas six eight football against the best competition uh, in the country. Um, you know, we we saw a lot of those games. Uh, we just didn't watch the highlight films. And there's a lot of those games where he had, to, you know, he had to carry the water, uh, where he had to be the reason they won or save them for, from losing. Uh, he's a guy that's fiercely, fiercely competitive. Um, he's very skilled, obviously. Um, he is, he's a different personality, but a personality that holds other accountable, holds others accountable, holds himself very accountable puts a lot of pressure on his teammates um, to be their best, uh, all good traits in the quarterback. And then he's got kind of what the, the new age modern quarterback secret sauce is, which is twitch. He's a guy that thinks quickly and, re- and reacts quickly. Um, he can just do things quicker, uh, twitchier than most people. Um, and because of that, he can really help you if you make the wrong call. He can help you if you miss a block. He can help you if things break down. He can take a, you know, a stinky sandwich and turn it into an ice cream cone. Um, he's that kind of guy. I think he'll have some struggles early on adapting to playing against better athletes all the time, but I don't think there'll be long-term struggles. I, I, I'm like everybody else. I think the fit in Arizona is too good to be true. It's not saying anything bad about Josh Rosen. I think he's probably a starter somewhere else. Um, but every once in a while, you just get these really unique fits. Uh, and I think he's the right fit there. Trent, this notion of Twitch, why, why is this such a big thing now? Why is this considered a new thing now? Well, I don't think it's a new thing. I think it's a trendy thing. And we started noticing at the grassroots level, I don't know, I, arbitrarily five, six years ago that, people started valuing, valuing Twitch more than power and stature. So remember forever the game was played in a scrum uh, as a quarterback. So it was seven-step drops. It was six- and seven-man protections. The pocket would collapse on you. Therefore, the six-five, six-six bodies were getting closer to you. It was harder to see. You had to have that power in your body, uh, not only to stand in there strong, but to, with, um, to withstand the beating because we used to get beat up at the quarterback position. 
the power came in to be able to force the ball down the football field. Most route concepts, the underneath guy was seven yards, the deeper guy was 20 yards, and there's a deeper guy that was 40 yards beyond him. And that was how, kind of how quarterbacks were evaluated. Remember, forever people said the quarterback throw was that 20-yard out pattern from the far hash. That's kind of how arm strength was, ma- was measured. Well, then the game became more horizontally based. It became more spread-based a lot more Saturday influence in the Sunday football. And if you really cared about being a good evaluator and you just didn't go on what you knew, but you kept trying to grow in what you know, then all of a sudden you said, wow, you don't need, you don't play the scrum anymore. You don't have to make the 20 yard out throw more than 20 times a year. Uh, We don't have three layer throws every down where the ball's going either seven, 20 or 40. A lot of it's about twitch and precision. And those guys were having success. And no longer were offensive linemen constantly being shoved back into your lap. The movement game became more vogue, where it was not just design rollouts and boots, but where second reaction became valuable, where the quarterback reacting to a breakdown in the offensive line and, and escaping from the pocket in a second reaction move and knifing the defense that way. Everybody started going, ooh, ah, that's what we want. So I don't think one's better than the other. I think it's all about fit and where you want to go with your offense. I also think the quarterback-driven run game is a big thing. Like forever, you didn't want to run too much, not because you didn't want the quarterback getting running yards. Nobody ever opposed the quarterback going to get running yards. But just taking the mid-'90s, you know, I was an athletic guy. Even though I stunk, I was still an athletic guy at 6'4", 240. I could get a lot of yards. When we went down the slide, you were still going to get headhunted. Somebody was still going to hit you. The job was to cut the head off the snake, and that's what the defense knew. So we took a beating even as runners. Now you see safeties pulling up eight yards from a quarterback because they don't want to be fined $50,000. Now you can't touch the quarterback, so the value of a quarterback being able to extend plays and get hidden yards in the run game and not risk injury is much higher. So you just naturally are going to gravitate towards that that type of player at that position. Trent, I can't tell you how much I've missed these conversations, honestly. Now, when you mentioned, you're right, back in the day, it was all about take that snake or take that head off that snake. Take the head off the snake, kill the snake. When you were out there and you were in the open field and you were a big dude playing that position, who were the guys that you were most concerned about that were coming for you that were looking to take that head off the snake? <laughs> All of them. I right. played in the I played in the NC North at the time. You know, Jack Del Rio. I played against uh, Johnny Randall, Leroy Butler, one of the most underrated safeties in the history of football. Um, some of those Bears defenses had some monsters. Uh, then we go out. My first start was ever was against the Forty ers You had Kenny Norton, and you had you know those. You had uh, Romanowski, crazy Romanowski. I mean you. Every time you broke the line of scrimmage, I mean, it was known that, you know, and I didn't mind it. I grew up, you know, the son of an offensive line coach and a linebacker mentality, so I liked the physical part of the game. But you knew that, I mean, it was very well known. Zach Thomas for the Miami Dolphins. Um, these guys were assassins, and I don't blame them. I never once got, well, I got mad at Johnny Randall one time. But besides that, I never once got mad. I mean, that's their job. It's just different, and I like the modern game. I'm fine with it. I love that quarterbacks can play until they're 46, 47 years old. I think that's wonderful. 
but it's very hard to fairly compare the two because it's uh, it's just a different style, a different upbringing, a different expectation for the position. Trent, you mentioned John Randall. I, I could follow you up on any of the guys you mentioned, but I'm glad you mentioned John Randall because he was an amazing player. But in 1995, if I'm not mistaken, were you not the only quarterback ever to get thrown out of a game? Did you not give John Randall the hands? What happened that day? Yeah, <laughs> unwisely so. Uh, and Johnny and I became very good friends. We're golfing buddies to this day. Um, but, yeah, he was the guy that got in my head. You know, he just was always talking – he was always hitting you just past the whistle. He was always hitting you just low enough where you felt like he was trying to get your knees. Um, and I, you know, I'd thrown a frustrating interception like I did a lot early in my career and didn't know how to handle my emotions. And he got the, he got inside my head and I was an idiot. I tried to punch him through his helmet. He was laughing at me the whole time. Um, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of issues, as you know, Jim. That's just one of them. <laughs> Trent, that's really funny because John Randall was that guy. You know, it was funny. My, my experience with him, Trent, because you're right, he never stopped talking. He never, ever stopped talking, and he could talk such great junk. And you can imagine when I was younger too, Trent, I had a lot of issues myself, and I couldn't wait to get him on the radio, and then he wouldn't say shit. He wouldn't say anything. I'm like, John, John, are you kidding? And then that was a way of getting into my head too because he would never give me what I wanted. It was so disappointing because he never stopped talking on the field, but on the show he would never say anything at all. He always said yes to the interview, but he never said said anything uh, he is so opposite off the field as on the field we play together in seattle and he's just such a kind soft-spoken he's an unbelievable husband and dad he's a he's a totally different dude in the locker room but once he puts that war paint on his eyes and once he puts that helmet on he is psychotic he was psychotic you can now earn O rewards points online and at your local o'reilly auto parts store Earn points any way you shop at O'Reilly Auto Parts. You'll get a $5 reward for every 150 points you earn. Visit orewards.com and become an O'Reilly O Rewards member today. We talked about the draft process for some of these kids with the Elite 11. You went through the process yourself. Now, obviously, it was a very different time then than it is right now. But coming into the NFL, what was your thought process? What was going through your mind? And what kind of a career did you expect to have? Because you did go number six overall. Well, I was a narcissist like I think everybody else is at that age when you're being told how great you're going to be. And I might tell these kids when we get them in Elite 11, when I mentor them through the draft process or talk to them on the phone or whatever it is, it's, you know, you got to surround yourself with some truth tellers too. You got to surround yourself with some people that are going to tell you where the gaps you need to fill and where you're not ready and the dangers around each corner instead of just being around people that are telling you how great you're going to be. So I, I had great people in my life, but everybody just thought, you know, college football was not hard for me. I, I was very successful. Uh, we put up a ton of points. We had a bunch of guys playing the NFL off my offense. We didn't play against the greatest competition. Uh, so I thought the NFL was going to be the same way. So I frankly got a little complacent, obviously very full of myself, was not emotionally mature enough um, to handle some of the pressures and expectations of the NFL game. And uh, so I just try to warn these guys, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with being a legend in your own mind. I think we all as quarterbacks have to be a legend in your own mind. You have to believe you're invincible. You have to believe that you're right. You have to be decisive. You have to do a lot of these things that borderline on narcissism. But you also have to have people that 
tell you the truth and that you'll listen to and that will humble, humble you a little bit and get you prepared. And, you know, I, I think one of, and I, and Tom has mentioned this before. He doesn't like talking about his family a lot, but I know the Brings very, very well. I played with Mo, the sister. I'm uh, sorry. I went to school with Mo, the sister at Fresno, gotten to know the Braves over the years, and they've always been really good truth tellers in his life. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's very grounded with being the GOAT, is that he also surrounds himself with people that will tell him where uh, he needs to do the things to, to continue to push himself. And I think every young quarterback needs those things because now, especially, we live in a, in a world where, you know, you, it's, it's not just the people around you, but really everybody has a voice uh, in your life. And for his for as um, bad as Twitter is and social media is for pumping these kids, overhyping these kids, I think in some ways it's pretty good, too, because it also humbles you. I mean, any of us, you, any of us that are public figures, can get on social media and quickly realize uh, how uncool many people in the world think we are. Boy, that's the truth, isn't it? That's really interesting. But I think you're right. I mean, we I've always said this myself. You do not want people around you who tell you what you want to hear. You want people around you who will tell you what you need to hear. But, you know, there's that whole thing about social media. Before, when you and I were doing our thing earlier, there wasn't social media, but there was still reaction. You told this amazing story, and you told the story. Like, when you were in Tampa, Trent, it was a tough start, but you got better and better and better. You made a Pro Bowl. You had some great moments there, but there were some challenging moments, moments where the city was not in, didn't have your back, so to speak. Moments where you were, quote, booed out of a steakhouse. Now, Trent, you've told that story, but did that really happen? Were you really ever booed out of a steakhouse? Well, I probably shouldn't say out because we stayed. But okay. Yeah, we went. And I, I forget the details. And I've asked my wife, and she can't remember the details either. It was either the last game of the season or the last home game of the season in 94, 95. Uh, I'm sorry, 95 or 96. Uh, Bill is a street where the stadium is, the old sombrero was on, and there's an Outback Steakhouse just north. And on our way home, we live north of the stadium. We stopped by to have a steak on our way home. And you know, put my name in at the hostess stand, and when they announced Bill for Party of Two, here's my wife now. Now we're 24 years old, maybe. Um, got married in college. Uh, I don't think we'd had our first child yet, and all of a sudden, you know, the whole restaurant stands up and starts booing you. <laughs> it's a very uncomfortable situation. And to my wife's credit, she's she's a bulldog. She's the tough one in the family. She said, "We're going and sitting at that table right there Ooh. in the middle," and we we went and sat right in the middle of it. Well, that's great. That's really something else. You know, so I want to ask you, like, on some level, Trent, and you were young, and you guys were you were battling, you know? So do you get that on some level, or do you think to yourself, man, y'all are out for a nice dinner with your lady or your family. How are you not enjoying this moment? Who gets up and boos somebody else in a restaurant? This is not Tampa Stadium. It's a fucking Outback Steakhouse. Yeah, I, I still struggle. I struggle with that on TV, to be honest with you. I struggle with insane fandom. I struggle when people get so emotionally wrapped up into what others people are doing in their lives that they can have that type of visceral reaction. Um, that's just me. Um, I get frustrated in life. I'm like everybody else. I have my bad moments. We all make mistakes. Um, but I just have never understood how if you feel that let down by somebody, and by the way, they were right to feel that let down. I, I let down a city with how I played early in my career. But even at that, to, to not have the decency to understand that, you know, that that's another human being that's 
that's probably trying their best or at least having some – their intent isn't to let you down. Um, I've just always struggled with that in general. Um, but, yeah, those those were hurtful times. But I, I guess I understand the, the pain of a fan that is expecting the savior to roll into town when he drafts number six overall, six overall and be arguably the worst player in football my second year. Uh, I can understand that frustration. I can understand not liking me. I can understand booing me. Uh, I never quite understood how it could go another level. I mean, I, you know, we've all, you probably think this more than me, where you're at a restaurant or you're having a nice evening out and, you know, the one idiot comes along and wants to pick a fight with you because he doesn't like what you said on the radio or TV or whatever it is. Like, I get that you might disagree with me and I get that you may not like me at all. That's fine. But it doesn't have to come to hands. It doesn't have to be a, a blown up issue. Exactly right. It doesn't have to be a reason to go or a reason to get up and boo somebody who's trying really hard. I, I agree with you. Like you, you and I know what we signed up for. We understand that, and we understand our careers. But I think I think there is a line. I think that's really interesting. All right. So Trent, you, you spent six years there, and then ultimately Tampa let you go. I'm curious at that point in your career, how dialed in were you for the next challenge? In other words, how sharp were you emotionally and competitively for the next chapter of your career? Yeah, I was getting there. I was pretty dialed in. I had, you know, 99, my last year in Tampa, I had uh, gotten benched early in the year about something I did not feel feel was my fault. What really hurt was I had the second longest Ironman streak going in the league next to Brett Favre. So I took a lot of pride in no matter how bad I played, I played. I showed up. Availability is your best ability. I was there for my teammates. I had endured a ton of injuries and played through them. And then I got benched for something I felt wasn't my fault. And that quarterback, um, Zaire, got hurt. And I came in the next week later and really played well, really played good. That back stretch of 99 before I eventually broke my collarbone and missed the rest of the year. And so I was just starting to figure out at a, at a higher level, uh, more of a, I'm still this from Steve Young all the time, but it, it resonates with me and more of an artistic level that the game was moving from science to art for me and was really starting to understand the nuance of it. And uh, and I, I understood why Tampa did it because I was due a very, very large buyback option. So at the time, the way contracts were structured, I was going into my second buyback. And that second buyback had a huge escalator. And I would have been one of the higher-paid players in football. And I didn't deserve to be one of the higher-paid players in football. So... They chose not to buy it back, which made me a free agent. Um, so I was disappointed, but not, I didn't feel, you know, I didn't feel like they just moved on for me. It was a necessary evil of the business of football. But I felt very, very confident once I got healthy. And it took me a year and a half to get healthy. But I felt once I got healthy again that my best football was ahead of me. And I don't have a ton to show for that period of time after that, but it was my best football. It was Unfortunately, injuries pretty much derailed the rest of my career, but um, I felt like I played the game at a much higher level that I had developed kind of the wisdom, emotional, intellectual maturity um, to, to handle everything that was the, the NFL. And I think I've learned a lot of those lessons from, you know, winning a Super Bowl uh, with the greatest defense of all time and playing injured the whole year to going to Seattle and having ups and downs there, but playing really well when I play and, Going to Cleveland, which everybody thinks was a terrible move, I I really enjoyed my time in Cleveland before I got hurt again, and then ultimately 
uh, ending my career with being knocked out at candlestick for three minutes. So, um, I, but I, you know, again, you gotta look at it from my side. Like I, I really bought into the journey, not necessarily making pro bowls or, you know, going to super bowls after that. And I felt like my journey was very, very rich on the back half of my career. Uh, even though I don't necessarily have a lot to show for it. Trent, can I tell you, I could not agree with you more. I I mean this sincerely, and I think part of this is you're so good anecdotally, but when you say things, and I know you're sincere when you say this, that like I don't have a lot to show for this or I might not have been the best, I think your career honestly is fascinating. I really do because of the journey itself. Like take Baltimore. When you went to Baltimore, maybe you didn't go there. Well, maybe they didn't see you going there to start, but knowing you and as competitive as you were and are, I think in the back of your mind, you probably thought, hey, at some point I'm going to be the guy. And sure enough, about halfway through the year, you were the guy. But there was a point in that year where the team went through a five-game stretch where it did not score a TD. Not that I've been in an NFL locker room as a player, but it seems to me it can go one of two ways, right? Guys point the finger, the locker room tears apart the season goes up in flames or the real leaders pull together and they step up and I've heard you describe that scene there that these guys had real grit not what you would call book grit but real grit I like that line what does that mean and what was said in that locker room when the Ravens were five and four well I, yeah it's, it's it's a great tee up because everybody now throws that term around like they know what it means passion perseverance towards a long-term goal we all can recite what Angela Duckworth put in a book, a brilliantly written book. And a lot of people think they have grit until they're actually challenged to show grit. And that team and a group of us, I would say really eight to ten of us, uh, were the ones that – so those four games that I didn't start and we didn't score a touchdown, I easily could have been the opposite. I easily could have been the guy saying, hey, put me in, coach, and Tony's not doing his job. And look, at, see, you should have made this decision a long time ago. Uh, instead, I was the guy and, and made sure that there were other guys in offense who were like, hey, what can we do to get better? You know, how can we bear our nose down and, and just keep moving forward? How do we work harder? How do we find solutions? How do we not listen to the outside noise? And, and there was eight to ten of us, Harry Swain, um, Shannon Sharp, Ray Lewis, Rod Woodson, um, a bunch of, I don't want to leave, there's a bunch more that I'll leave out, but um Guys that just really decided that we were going to let, we weren't going to let the noise and the disappointment uh, keep us from what we really believed was our long-term destiny, which was winning a Super Bowl, and and we did hard things. Uh, we chose not to do the common thing, uh, and uh, collectively that became infectious and systemic in a good way in the locker room. And every everybody chose to really be gritty in their approach and. It became the greatest experience I've ever experienced in football when we became completely self-policed. We became completely self-accountable as a team. Literally, we had the greatest coaching staff of all time, if you go back and look at that defensive coaching staff. And we didn't, and they'll tell you this, we didn't need any of them. Marvin Lewis would tell you that. Jack O'Reilly would tell you that. Rex Ryan would tell you that. You know, we didn't need them because we, we self-policed. Rod Woodson was the one that, when we didn't get take care of business, would call us in to a teaming afterwards and kick the coaches out and line the chairs up in offense defense. And we'd walk through with chairs. We'd be the ones that held each, held each other accountable from not going out too late on certain nights or eating the right foods or getting an extra workout in or whatever it was. So um, it was a really, really special experience. And it, it was really a, a function of what now we define as grit. Um, but it was really uh, just a bunch of dudes that, 
cared about each other, cared about the long-term goal so much that they were willing to sacrifice for one another and not worry about who got the credit, who got the blame. At the end of the day, the score was going to decide whether we were successful or not. And, and the score after that, after my first start, never lost another once over 12 straight weeks. That score was always in our favor. Listen, it can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or you're running late to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you probably can feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Don't do it, ever. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be. They cannot stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal. And what used to be you, well, better not to think about that. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train is going to arrive. The train cannot stop even if it sees you. The result is a disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. And you just need to remember one single thing. Stop. Trains can't. And Trent, you mentioned one of my favorite lines too. Availability is the best ability. And that's not an easy thing in that league. You glossed over this, but you were badly hurt that year and were able to grind through it. What was the injury, and what was the treatment like? What were you dealing with that year on your way to a Super Bowl? Oh, it was brutal. That year, I didn't really know what it was. I was the idiot that didn't go in and kind of ask what it was. Now, it's probably a good thing because they wouldn't have let me play. They wouldn't have let me play. They would have, you know, put me on the shelf for a little bit. Tony would have come back in. Tony probably would have played really well and he'd be the Super Bowl champion quarterback. But I had a thing called osteitis pubis and it's a, a common hockey injury. Not very common in football, basketball, baseball. It's basically where you get calcification uh, in the, where your groin, hip flexor, in that pelvic joint, like right underneath your junk. And, uh, it would. It was so painful. There'd be times I'd get up in a meeting and I couldn't stand all the way up. I couldn't train the way I wanted to train. I'd lost a bunch of weight. I wasn't nearly as physical as I had been in, in the past. It really messed up my hips. And as a thrower, you really, it's a rotary movement. It's something that's generated from your hips way more than your arm, way more than your chest, even more than your legs. Um, that is that hip rotation that allows you to be a consistent, powerful thrower. And uh, I had lost almost all of it. I'm not just throwing ground balls in practice on Sunday. So here you go from being an NFL thrower to a guy that, you know, has a hard time throwing a 12-yard slant because the body just shuts down. And, uh, you know, there's enough drugs you can take and there's enough treatment you can do that I could manage it. Um, but when I got to Seattle the next year is when it was diagnosed. And that's when the hard treatments came. That's when I had to start sticking needles in that joint and to break up the calcification with um, – Lidocaine, which is a pain reliever uh, for game day, the cortisone um, in training camp to break up that stuff and to really give me some relief. And even to this day, I still kind of feel it a little bit if I'm active and working a lot or playing a lot of golf, but it was brutal. I don't wish upon my worst enemy. And, and every time I, you know, I tell this story publicly, somebody will tweet me or you know write me an email like, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only one that went through it. It's, it's horrible, uh, but it's a horrible injury to have. Trent, I feel like I need lidocaine just hearing that story. Yeah, imagine having your junk taped up on your belly and two 12-inch needles going into each groin. It's not, it's not really enjoyable. Dude, it sounds pretty horrible.
Sounds pretty horrific. Thanks for sharing that story, but it's my fault I asked you about that. So, Trent, it's incredible, like, knowing that especially, that you went through that and you did what you had to do to get ready on Sunday and play through it. You know, when you mentioned Tampa, you mentioned, I understand why they did what they did. It was a business decision. Yet, incredibly enough, Baltimore, after you win a Super Bowl, lets you go. Is that a decision that you understood at that time? Did they handle it the right way? Were they straight up about it? No, they didn't. They'd admit this, too. I don't think they were mean about it. They just probably didn't think it all the way through. I mean, the, the guy that called me was Matt Cavanaugh, my offensive coordinator. I was, on, I was in the airport on the way to the Estes uh, with my wife. And, you know, you get a call and you're like, hey, I don't know how to say this to you, but uh, you're a free agent, but so is Brad Johnson and Elvis Gerback. And after our, our evaluations after the season, um, Ozzie and Brian think we'll be more explosive on offense if Brad Brad's the number one, Elvis is the number two, you're the number three. Now, at the time, you want to go, do you even realize I was hurt all year? Do you even realize that, yeah, I get it, I didn't practice very well, but that's not me, and somehow I still was able to perform, uh, yada, yada, yada. But I just think at that point, you're, you know, you're, you're wise enough to know that you just you, there's not much you can do at that point. And, and Brad decided to go to Tampa, which was a great decision for, for him. And then Elvis had been in Kansas City, and, and he jumped at the opportunity, got a bunch of money to do so. And, and we all know how that turned out for both sides. But, um, you know, yeah, I don't think they handled it great. I don't, I don't really have – I don't harbor any bitterness towards Brian or Ozzie. Um, but, I, I, I mean, I think they know this. They didn't handle it the best way. Wait, Trent, I mean, like Brad Johnson, solid guy, solid player, you know, I mean, I could hear the argument, I guess. I could hear the argument. But when they told you that you'd be looking up at Elvis Gerback, how did that feel? <laughs> Not good. Um, I mean, I, we just stand for different things as a quarterback. Um you know, and I, I again, it's not the first time I've told a story. I'm not a big fan of his. You know, he also went on TV and said, well, now Baltimore gets to see a real quarterback he looks like. And, you know, and to me, I, again, it goes back to my roots. I'm the son of an offensive line coach. I grew up on the back of a blocking sled. I was a linebacker by nature. I believe in toughness and grit and all the intangible stuff is really the most important thing you can do. I believe in availability is your best ability. I believe in hard things equals great things. So I believe in all those things, and he doesn't. Um, and I just believe that that's why you win. At the end of the day, you win because your quarterback can be the leader in, in those areas, that he can do things that others don't have the emotional, physical capacity to do. Um, and I, I pride myself that I, my numbers aren't very good. I, there's a lot of bad football I played. I don't think you'll have find one teammate in my 14-year career that will ever doubt my investment and how much I cared about them and the things I was willing to sacrifice for them. Uh, and I think that's why I was able to win a lot of games and have some great experiences. I think guys that throw for a lot of yards on first and second down in the middle of the field, um, guys that look really pretty and look good in shorts, uh, those are a dime a dozen. We call them driving range quarterbacks. They look really good on the driving range until live bullets start flying. And uh, I just never wanted to be one of those guys. Mm. Trent, a few more things before I let you go. I appreciate all that. So you become a free agent. Mike Holmgren calls you. What was that telephone call like? What did he tell you? Yeah, I really began the renaissance of my football education. Um, Mike, one, had remembered my pro day. He, he says, well, the best pro days he'd ever seen. He's a Bay Area guy, so he knew me from my time in the Bay Area. Maybe in Fresno. He'd always kind of admired 
uh, my grit, my toughness. I'd played in the division against him uh, for all those years when he was in Green Bay. Uh, I'd actually played really well at times against Green Bay. Um, so he saw the ceiling. Uh, he knew my athleticism. He knew all the stuff we just talked about and, and really felt like he, I had never been unleashed, that I had never been able to play the position the way it should be played, had never been taught the position properly, which is all true. Um, and he really wanted to take me on as a project. And he was honest with me. He knew that Matt, he had just traded for Matt Hasselback, who never played a meaningful snap in football, but saw the upside in Matthew and uh, wanted to see if I would buy into that. And I did. At that point in my career, it was, you know, you just win a Super Bowl and you're, you know, you're the third guy on a free agent list. That, you know, I, I also was wise enough to look myself in the mirror and say, okay, you know, there must be some truth in this too. Like they're not 100% wrong. Baltimore's not 100% wrong. That, they, you know, they watched me practice. They saw the inconsistency. They saw, you know, a couple weeks of really bad football in that stretch. Like, they got there's some flaws in my game, some big flaws. I need to fix them, and, and who can fix them? And I thought Mike and Jim Zorn specifically and Gil Haskell, who was office coordinator, I thought that three-headed monster would really be a three-headed monster that I could learn from, that I could get better, and and kind of resurrect my, my career. And, and I did. You know, frankly, I did. I played really well once I got the Ossias Pugas fix. Um, one four guys, 4-0 that first year. In fact, at one stretch of my career, I won 16 straight games. If you go Baltimore, Seattle, uh, I was understanding the West Coast offense. Mike said that I picked it up faster than any player to ever coach. Um, you know, so it, it was affirming to get there and do the things that he said I'd be able to do and do them. And then I signed a big contract, a very incentive-based contract in, oh, what is that, oh, two, um, because I, I have a history of injuries at this point, and they had my medical records, so they're not just going to throw guaranteed money at me. And, and then I tear my Achilles uh, week eight, nine, something like that. The game that Emmett Smith uh, breaks the rushing record in Dallas, I tear my Achilles, and tearing it I knew at the time I was, I was losing 11, 12 million bucks because of the contract. But up until that point, I felt like I was back, like I was the best I had been. I had set out to do something very specific with my career, and Mike and Gil and Jim had all helped do that. I had great teammates. I'm talking about a great group of guys. That group in Seattle was a great group and um, was helping turn that thing around. But, you know, it just kind of reset for the next part of my journey, which isn't real glamorous, but I still take a lot of pride in. No, I know it. And I know you love that time in Cleveland and you got to finish it in San Francisco. Trent, before I let you go, let me ask you this, and it relates around Seattle too. I understand that you love the game of football. I understand you love the intangible qualities that it takes to excel. It seems to me, though, even above and beyond all that, you're about your faith. You're about your family. And you and your family lost your beloved son, Trevin, tragically at the age of five after that battle with heart disease. I think many people know that story. Can you take a few moments and just tell us about Trevin? What was he like? What do you remember about him? I appreciate that question. I usually get the question teed up around, you know, how did I deal with it and all that stuff. And that's an easy answer. I claimed by a thread to life. And, you know, what went through massive depression and my faith and friends and community pulled me out of it. But Trevin was awesome. And he was what, you know, he was the peacemaker. He, you know, yeah, he was a young, studly kid, good looking, strong, active, loved sports, blah, 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 blah. But more than anything else, he loved his sisters. He loved his mama. 
He loved to snuggle after he ate. Whenever his belly was full, he'd jump on jump on somebody. He had to snuggle. He was a lover. Uh, he always tried to make peace between the sisters when they were bickering. He hated when mom and I ever got into an argument. Uh, he just had that sweet soul to him at a young age that he kind of he wanted everything to be. He wanted everybody to be lovey dovey, as he said all the time. And um, there's still a giant gap missing in our family, but because of our faith, we believe this is a temporary residence, and we'll see him again one day. And and uh, it, it's all it's the hugest part of our family. I'm sitting here staring in my in my new office. I'm staring at my a picture. I have one picture. It's myself, my three beautiful daughters, and my gorgeous wife. And yeah, every time I see that picture, I I, I know there's somebody missing. He'd be 21 years old right now, and and it hurts to tell it each time. But it's also therapeutic because. I think with pain and with loss also comes some really special memories, and they're very, very vivid to this day. Um, I can literally close my eyes and reach out and, you know, see exactly what he looks like and feel what his little muscles were like. And I can remember in his blue polo shirt and his khaki shorts and his orange flip-flops. I mean, I just – it's just, it's special. And there's probably people going, oh, I feel so sorry for you. We well, you don't have to feel sorry for us. You know, it's we know that it's part of life, and – a hard part of life and i think there's a gap there but we also are really appreciative of what we do have and and what life has done for all of us and he's always there he's always there and especially on november 10th which is his birthday i know you still celebrate his birthday every november 10th with his favorite meal ribs and root beer and that's taken on a life of its own what's that been like it really has i'm glad you said that one too you you obviously has always done your research and you know me and it's become cool because my our friend group really celebrates his with celebrates it with us every november 10th it's always during football season right and my life's all about football so for years i was at espn or whatever it was and and the community now has kind of adopted it where our closest friends will always send us pictures that night of it's become a family tradition for them on november 10th that they'll have ribs and root beer uh to remember trevin and celebrate his life and a lot of those seattle families that got to know him and and played with their kids and whatnot. They they they're the ones, especially the Hasselbacks and others, that uh, really embraced that evening, as well as the 40 families that came and stayed with us at Lucille Packard while he was on life support for 40 days. So um, it's become a neat little tradition when we all uh, get a kick out of. And now my oldest is 23 and she's off, and you know the middle one's in college. So there's sometimes we FaceTime ribs and root beers together. So. Mm. Uh, it's been a cool little thing for us to carry out the tradition of traveling in this birthday. That's super. Gosh, where does the time go? Listen, I think I speak for most people when I say this. Finding high-quality clothing that fits great is not always easy. I have. I found it. And I found a great company behind it. This company is founded by Pro Surfer and 11-time world champion Kelly Slater. I mean, pretty obviously, you look at this guy. How sharp is Kelly Slater? He looks great. And his company is great. They've got a mission to provide great clothes that don't harm the environment. Outer Known is the company. Outer Known Clothes are for people and planet. Outer Known has high-quality, sustainable clothes, durable construction, and great fit. I know I speak from experience because I wear it. Outer Known only works with factories that pay fair living wages and provide safe working conditions. So, I know where the clothing is made, and I know how it's made, and I know how it looks, and I know how it feels. Unbelievable. Find out for yourself. Go to OuterKnown.com right now. Enter my code ROAM at checkout, and you'll get 25% off your full price order. 
That's OuterKnown.com. Let me spell it out for you. O-U-T-E-R-K-N-O-W-N.com. And remember, use my code Rome and get 25% off at checkout. Check them out right now. OuterKnown.com. Do not forget to use the promo code Rome and get your 25% off. OuterKnown.com. Because you played your ball at Fresno State and you grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco gave you a chance to come home and play for the team that you grew up watching and loving before you leave us. What was it like to do that and to be around all those Niner legends, guys that you respected and grew up admiring? It's the best. It's the coolest alumni of players ever. What Eddie DeBarlo did with that group of human beings, not just what they did on the field, but Bill Walsh and McVeigh and Eddie and all the leadership there. Um, talk about true, authentic greatness. Everyone I ever met, uh, and many of them very close friends, Steve, you know, probably being the closest, uh, they just have an understanding of what excellence is more so than the next person. That's why they're so, they've gone on and crushed life beyond their Super Bowls. I mean, most of those guys have gone on and, and just crushed life at a high level because the principles that were taught to them in their 49er years carried on forever. Uh, and that talk about a group is just so tightly knit, and most of them still live in the Bay Area. Most of them still are with each other. I mean, the story of Dwight Clark's passing and, and what Brent Jones um, did and what the rest of that community, and Brent's one of the finest humans on the planet, another great friend, a mentor of mine, uh, what those guys did as a as a community of Niners and how Eddie always brought them back together and how they always celebrated each other's successes and they always suffered with each other's setbacks uh, really sets them apart. Uh, in my mind, is the greatest franchise ever. And, um, and I know that's debatable, but just my experience during two years, not much happened on the football field, but a lot happened in community and, and getting a greater appreciation for uh, what true excellence is and, and I think that one of the great gifts of my life is getting to know Steve and Brent at the depths that I know him, and I'd add Ronnie to that too, and learning from them, sitting on planes with Steve Young for nine years, coming back from Monday Night Football games and hearing stories and, and spending time in Lake Tahoe with Brent Jones where we're neighbors and, and just getting to truly understand what Bill and Eddie and that group taught them and what they went through and, and how that carries over into life. A lot of those things that I'm teaching these you know, 13 through 17-year-old knuckleheads comes from that from those lessons that I've learned through Bill Walsh and through Eddie DeBarlo. I'm sorry, from those guys through Steve Young and Brent Jones and Ronnie Lott. So uh, their legacy goes very, very deep into a lot of places in the NFL and football community in general. Trent, can you hit me with one last thing? Because I think this is what you're trying to teach those knuckleheads, something that you learned at some point. You've said the theme of your life is is authenticity. What do you mean by that? What does it mean to be truly authentic? Well, number one, being true to yourself. I think all the mistakes I've made in my life, I was lying to myself at some point. Um, you, you know, the man in the mirror is a guy that doesn't lie if you're willing to listen. And uh, for their seasons of life where I wouldn't listen. Um, but the more I listen, the more I'm more true and deep and pure and authentic with myself. Well, then that, I think, I hope, comes out with others. Um, I don't have a lot of time to fake it anymore. Um, I don't have a lot of time for people that fake it. Uh, we live in a very PC, um, fake world sometimes. And uh, it's hard to really get deep and connect with people and have impact 
if one, we're not authentic with ourselves, and two, if we're not authentic with others. So, I mean, I, I get it. It makes some people really uncomfortable. I've said some things on TV about myself, and people say, man, I can't believe you're saying it. But I'm an open book, um, and I know i got my flaws. Trust me, I, I know that. Um, but there's also a lot of life's lessons that, that have been pretty rich and uh, hopefully impactful because of that. And, and now in this season of my life, hopefully that authenticity develops a connection with a bunch of, like I said, 85, 16, or 13 to 17-year-old knuckleheads who I love dearly. You know, I want them not to make the mistakes I made. I want them to be true to themselves. I want them to have greater impacts on their communities than I did. I want them to be better husbands and fathers than I am. Um, you know, hopefully that's a legacy. I, you know, 14 NFL career is cool. Nice little resume builder. Um, but it's, it, it really has nothing to do with who I am. Uh, I'm no, sorry. The lessons learned have a lot to do with who I am, but it's not my identity. My identity is, is something far greater than that. Trent, I, I really respect what you've taken on and the limited amount of time you have to spend this kind of time with me means a great deal. I'm just I'm really glad that you and I could connect, connect like this, like I do interviews and then I'll do a long form podcast. But it's one thing to do an interview. And if you're lucky, it becomes a conversation. But if you're really lucky, you can connect. And I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with you once again, Trent. That was so much fun and really, really great to listen to. Thanks, brother. I appreciate the, the form. I love these things, and I've always had a great deal of respect for you. So keep crushing it, and we'll do it again. Nobody really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. I mean, who's got time for all the traffic, the parking, the lugging of all your mail and packages? I mean, it is truly a hassle, right? This is why you need Stamps.com. It is one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and on top of that, saves you money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. For instance, with Stamps.com, you get $0.05 cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com, to me, is an absolute no-brainer because you save time and you save money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, if you're listening... You can get a special offer, which includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Again, it's a no-brainer. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in my last name, Rome. Stamps.com, enter Rome. Save time, save money. It is a great value proposition. Stamps.com, enter Rome. My thanks to Trent Dilfer for breaking away from his insanely busy schedule to give us some great time on the pod. If you want to hit Trent up about what you just heard, make sure to do so on Twitter at Dilfer's Dimes. That's at Dilfer's Dimes. And if you haven't subscribed yet to the Jim Rome podcast, what the hell are you waiting for? This thing defines range from Aubrey Huff to Kevin Frazier, to Steve Elkington, to Trent Dilfer. And that's just in the last month alone. I've got 70 more of these things that hold up to this day, and not one episode sounds like any other. So smash that subscribe button. Stay in the fold. Best decision you'll make today. I guarantee it. Back next week with F78. I'm out. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 